right, looks like it's about time to start. these beautiful mothers walking in. Morning, Neil. Well, good morning, everybody. I want to uh, wish a very happy Mother's Day to all the mamas in the in the crowd. I see a lot of beautiful ladies this morning. The, uh, for the the ladies, did everybody get a flower? We were handing out flowers. Did you? Did, did any of the ladies in here not get a flower this morning? Raise your hand. I think everyone got one. Good. Awesome. 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 Well, we're going to get started here. Let's take some time. And uh, I'm going to ask my favorite question I love to ask every single week. What is one thing good that God has done in your life this week? What is one thing good that God has done in your life this week? Let's start there. Yes, ma'am. You got to see June Holcomb. How'd that go? Yeah. Anyone else? Something good God has done in your life this week. My daughter Tiffany. Daughter Tiffany. What a wonderful name. <laughs> Tiffany came to see Mama for Mother's Day. Very good, very good. And it you rained have, in my house. It rained. Hallelujah. Did anybody get rain? We all got a little bit of rain. Terry Bevan got a whole lot of rain, didn't he, Terry? <laughs> I'm telling you. I think God, God was sending a message there at that address. Three tanks full. I only have one tank. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? Okay. Well, let's take some time to pray. What do we need to be praying about this morning? Oh, I should be thankful. My, my little place in New Mexico, God has protected it. I just talked to my daughter this morning. As far as they know, their business in Las Vegas is protected. Good. Uh, thank you for your prayers. We, they continue to have starting yesterday in the next four or five days, historical record winds without ceasing. It's not even slowing down at night, which they said is unheard of. And, uh, no one has been hurt. Oh, thank you. We always forget. <laughs> sorry. pretty loud. Sorry. But anyway, our place, God has uh, heard our prayers and protected my personal place and their business and the firefighters. They've got about 1,500 people fighting the fire, firefighters, wow. and there are uh, lots of resources, but God has protected them. Uh, in the meantime, there are 12,000 
homes up there where families have been displaced. They can't be at home for Mother's Day. And, uh, of course, a lot of them have lost homes, but so very difficult. But anyway, thank you for your prayers. Absolutely. Alan, I got a, like an echo back here. Can we maybe adjust that just a hair? Just a Along bit. the same lines with uh, Sandy, Camp Blue Haven has been spared so far. It's just over the hill from her place. And okay. It, the fires had it surrounded, but it's not destroyed anything. Wow. Yet. Okay. What else do we need to be praying about this morning? Okay. Oh, yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Pray for all the mamas. All right, well, let's take a moment. Let's go to the Father in prayer, and we will uh, begin our time together this morning. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of being able to be in this room and to study your word. God, we're grateful for all of the many blessings uh, that you impart to us. And Lord, we recognize that, that even just waking up this morning was a blessing from you because your mercies are new every morning. And so, Father, as we come before you on this day that is set aside in our country as Mother's Day, we remember all of the mothers and are just so grateful for, for all of the hard work that they do, um, for the influence that they have over our lives. And, Lord, I'm very aware of the fact that, um, that this day brings with it a lot of different emotions. Uh, some have their mothers with them still. Some do not. Uh, some have had great experiences with their moms, and some have not. And so, Father, as we come before you, we just realize that, that, uh, that when, we, when, we, when we first come to you, we come to you broken, and that over the years, you have to reparent us in many ways, refather us and remother us. And, and so, Father, on this day, we, we thank you for all that you have done. We thank you for the contribution of those in our lives who have been mother figures to us. And, Father, we want to pray for uh, June Holcomb, uh, we ask for that miracle, Lord, that was mentioned earlier today. And we thank you, Father, that the fires in New Mexico have um, not destroyed uh, certain homes and, and places, but we ask that you would send rain. We ask that you would be with the firefighters and those who are battling this uh, disaster and that you would help them to be able to resolve this very quickly and that you would resolve this quickly. Help us to understand your word as we go into it, and uh, may it be a transformation for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, take out your Bibles, if you would, and let's turn back over to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. We're actually going to uh, do a couple of different things this morning. We almost got done with Psalm 22 last Sunday, um, but we, we, we came up just a little bit short on time. So we're going to go back to Psalm 22 and finish up what we talked about last week. And then I have something really special I want to, to, to talk to you about. And then we're going to introduce, just introduce, a brand new series that we're going to be starting next Sunday. If you want a hint, there's a graphic on the screen behind me. i uh, give you a little bit of a hint, but that'll be starting next Sunday. Psalm chapter 22. Um, what was the big deal with uh, this psalm last week? Remember what we talked about? Matthew chapter 27, we looked at the crucifixion of Jesus. And there's this curious statement that Jesus makes at uh, when he's on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I, and I mentioned to you that um, over the years, there's a lot of people that have thought, well, maybe what he was saying was is that, you know, because he's taking on the sin of the whole world in that moment, that God is, uh, I've heard it said, turn his back on his son. 
or God has rejected his son. And, and over the years, I've, you know, different people have different commentaries, different scholars have talked about, you know, the, the, the merits and the pros and cons of that particular view. Um, there is a sense in which Jesus becomes sin for us. There is a sense in which he becomes the curse for us. I don't know how far we can take that theologically, but, but one thing is clear is that when Jesus is on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. And I mentioned to you that there was a practice that was done in the first century, and we kind of do it today, where we will cite um, a verse. Sometimes we'll do it from a song. Sometimes we'll cite a verse from a poem or cite a verse from a scripture. And we're not quoting the whole thing, but we're intending to carry the flavor of the whole thing. So, for example, when I talked to somebody one time not too long ago, they were going through difficult times, and I said, man, you are really walking through that valley of shadow of death, aren't you? And see, they understood what I was saying because I'm drawing upon that psalm, but I'm not just drawing upon that. I'm drawing upon the whole flavor of the psalm, right? Not only are you right now walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but don't fear because God's with you, right? Well, the same kind of thing is happening here in Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. We get a little bit of a window, an insight into the mind of Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. And so we started reading Psalm 22 last week. And what I want to do is just go ahead and read through it uh, one more time to get back to where we ended last week. Um, if we get past a verse and you have a thought or a question or a comment, just raise your hand. Okay, and that'll give us time to, to bring the microphone over to you so that you can have a, a chance to speak. He starts off Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, in our fathers, in you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Okay, so stop right there. Remember, who wrote this psalm? David, David wrote this psalm. A thousand years before Jesus is born. In the New Testament, King David is also called a prophet. There are times in the psalms... Um, when he is, is, is writing his music, and it's very clear that he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he's speaking prophetically. Psalm chapter 22 is one of those occasions. It's known as a messianic psalm. In fact, in the first century, the Jews also believed that Psalm 22 was a messianic psalm. And if you notice, he begins by expressing his feelings, his emotions about where is God. He sees all of these these horrible negative circumstances that are surrounding him. And naturally, like you and I, when we go through bad times, it's very easy to be tempted to say, God, where are you, isn't it? Right? Where are you, God? Where are you in the midst of all this pain and suffering that I'm going through? So he expresses this. But then when you get down to verse 3 and 4 and 5, the emphasis changes. And this is something that I think it's very important for all of us. When we're going through those times where it feels like God is not with us, what do we need to do? We need what trust. And the way that we trust is by looking back at all the times in the past that God has been with us, right? I will fear no evil. Why? Because you've proven to me time and time again that you are with me and your rod and your staff, they'll comfort me, right? Okay. 
So that's the idea here. Now, look at verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man. So he's now looking back at himself and he's describing the circumstances. And I tell you what, it's almost as if somebody is at the foot of the cross writing down the events that they're watching. It's so clear prophetically that this is talking about Christ. Verse 6 again, but I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make, they, uh, make mouths at me. They wag their heads and they say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Now, Last Sunday, when I read that, after we had just got through reading Matthew 27, I heard a couple of gasps in the audience because that's almost a direct quote, isn't it, from the Pharisees when they were watching Jesus be crucified. They were wagging their heads. They were mocking him. They were saying, oh, let God help him if he really is from the Lord. Exactly what happened. Look at verse 9. Yet, again, he's turning his attention away from himself and back to God. You are he who took me from the womb You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help me. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. If you remember last week, I told you that the bulls of Bashan is a a reference to the land of Bashan, which do you remember Og, the big giant Og in the Old Testament? Okay, from that same area. And this is a way of talking about demonic entities. Okay, so as Jesus is on the cross, not only is he being surrounded by the Romans and the Jews who are hurling insults at him and spitting at him, but he's also being surrounded by the demonic entities who's very, very interested in watching him die thinking that I think, I think they thought they might have had success there. They didn't realize what was going to happen next. That's my opinion. That's my opinion. So verse 14, he describes how he feels. And again, this is almost a perfect picture of crucifixion a thousand years before Jesus, several hundred years before crucifixion was even invented by the Persians. Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast my shield, my, excuse me, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have, listen to this. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. Why is that important, that last verse? Prophetically speaking, why is that last thing that I just read important? That's exactly what the Roman soldiers did. They cast lots. Remember, Jesus wore a one-piece tunic, right? A one-piece tunic. And they didn't want to rip it apart, so they cast lots. They gambled to see which one of them would win, right? Again, perfect description of what happened. Um, But verse 19, but you, O Lord, and I think this is, isn't this where we left off last Sunday, right here? Verse 19, okay. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. These are Jesus' thoughts on the cross, guys. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of, 
of the dog. So up until now, this, this whole psalm has been very dark. It's been, um, it's been kind of a, a depressing tone. Um, it's coincided perfectly with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to watch this. In verse 21, the whole psalm begins to shift completely in its tone. The psalm now will enter into the joy that was set before Christ. Remember that in verse in the book of Hebrews? For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Okay? He prayed up until this point to be delivered out of death. And he is going to be delivered out of death, but not the way in which we expect. He's going to die but he's going to be raised again. Pick up with me in verse 21. Now, let's, before I read, are there any thoughts or questions or comments or anything up until this point? Yes, ma'am. Um, right back here, Terry. Thank you. The way I'm feeling right now, I just, it blows my mind that anybody could go do that. And just lay down everything, mm. you know, and so we can be forgiven. That's it. You know, and right now I just want to cry. Oh. Because oh. I mean, he laid down everything for us. The Word of God is powerful, isn't it? Yes, it is. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Here I am up here thinking, man, I hope I'm doing a good class, and the Word of God is touching this lady's heart back here. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Anybody else? Yes. On verse 18, uh, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Um, his garment, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was it purple? That's a good question. Is that why they cast lots? Because back then, the, the color purple, the silk was so expensive. Yeah, it's a good question. So, so David brought up a great point right now. I, I don't know of any verse that describes, in my opinion, the color of it, but when he was crucified. Yeah. Yeah, we'll let him answer there. They put a purple robe on him after they had beaten him, and it was on him for a little bit, and then they pulled it off of him, which if his back was bloody and open, then it would have stuck a little bit to the blood, and when they ripped it off, yeah. it would have opened it up. But... Uh, that's that's the only time the purple was on him. It was not on him when he went to the cross. Although you see it depicted, I was thinking, I've seen it depicted in pictures so many times where he's wearing like blue or like a purple kind of a sash thing around his body. Um, but yeah, exactly to David's point, that, you know, that there's this point where, again, remember what the charge against him was. They, they could not make an actual charge against him stick, right? They had people that lied and came forward and lied, and they said he said this and all this kind of stuff. The only charge that they actually charged him with is that he called himself the king of the Jews. And so they mocked him. And so they took a purple, ro purple robe and they put it over him, and they mocked him as being a king of the Jews. That's the only time I can think of purple being in there. So it's a great question, though. It was expensive. Anybody else? Yeah, Sandy. Uh, 
Yeah, of course, I always like to go and look at things in the Hebrew. The very yeah. first words, the Eli, you know, and y'all have heard me say this before, but Eli, which is going to connect to Daniel. I've got some questions for you about, oh boy. about that. Not now, we'll save that for All when right. you <clears throat> open that. But, you know, the Eli is literally that, that littlest hand, a littlest uh, letter of the Hebrew, the tiny that you can miss it. It looks like an asterisk. The yod, come at the yod. In the Hebrew, the yeah. yod, and it's the hand of God, but it's literally taking and grasping a hold. My God, it's so concrete. But I also wanted to back up even before you started, because in the Hebrew, I got I use the Bible Hub interlinear, <clears throat> fabulous, fabulous resource, and it's free. But in the introduction, in my English, <clears throat> we don't get it because it's got these Hebrew words for the choir director upon Ajelet Hashashar, a psalm of David. But then um, in this translation, it says, to the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn. And the deer, then it has a note, it's literally hind. So that takes my mind to Habakkuk and giving thanks, you know, that he's going to make my hind, my feet like hind's feet. He's not going to remove those mountains. We're going to walk through some tough terrain. Wow, good point. And uh, he's not going to smooth the road out for us. My son used to work out at Fluvanna out there on those wind turbines and mm-hmm. during his uh lunch break he would climb those very tall um things and take the cowling off and sit there and eat his lunch and you could he could see all the way to lubbock but mm-hmm. he said the coolest thing you're sitting right on the edge of the cap rock and they brought in these uh all dad sheep you know from Africa or whatever mm-hmm. and he said it was just the coolest thing they're just going boing 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 up and down those steep cap rocks and it's like it was so joyful, you know, and that is our challenge. We're gonna we're gonna walk some rough roads, but how can we be joyful and keep our feet secure? We better be praying every day. Lord, help help us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Life is challenging, and, so, and that was the thing with Jesus. You know, he he prayed for that path to change, but God said no. You know, this is my will. So you're exactly right. Very good point. Any other thoughts before we go forward? Okay, so let's get back into, look at verse 21. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell you, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Listen to that. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. In other words, God has not completely turned his heart and mind away from Jesus on the cross. This is all according to God's plan. Verse 23, you who, or excuse me, verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the afflicted the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him. He has not hidden his face from him, see? Um, But he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. See, See, sometimes we feel like God's not there, right? We feel like he's absent from our circumstances, 
But I step and I, I step back and I go, but you know what though? I know that's not true because look at all the things God has done in the past. And so I remind myself of what has been done in the past. And what does the Bible say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The Word of God. And you put the Word of God in that spirit of yours and you meditate on the truth of God's Word and guess what? That faith begins to rise once again. And then you, you get more sober-minded about your circumstances. Then you realize, wait a minute, this is just yet another circumstance. God is just as present here as He has always been with me. And that is exactly how the psalm ends. And that is exactly what was in the mind of Jesus when He was being crucified on that cross. Isn't that amazing? So keep reading with me. Verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Ooh, do you hear where this is pointing prophetically? Where is this beginning to point to? It's starting to point even further out into the future, isn't it? Listen to that again. And all the ends of the earth shall remember... And turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over all the nations. I think this is a direct reference to that messianic kingdom that we're all expecting. See, the book of Hebrews says that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross and scorned its shame. In other words, he had a reality fixed in his spirit that was more real to him than the current reality that he was experiencing. And that ultimate reality that he had fixed in his spirit was that messianic kingdom, that one day when he returns, when he makes all things right, when he wipes away every tear from their eyes, when we re shall receive new bodies, when death will be no more, when justice will roll like rivers all the way from Jerusalem for the healing of the nations, that is what he had fixed in his heart to endure anything that we had to go through right here. Yes, ma'am. Okay, I'm a bit of an English nerd. Okay. So when you take the word remember and oh, oh, here comes Terry. Hold on a second. If you take the word remember and divide it, re-member, you are re, again, membering yourself Ooh. with what you are recalling. So he was re Remembering himself with his father. And we are going to be remembering with him in the, in the end times. Oh, that's good. I mean, it, yeah, that, and reconnecting, but remembering. Anytime I hear that word, I see it, I think, remember again. Remember. Again, that's good. Very good. <clears throat> David? When we read about... You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me and all the bad things of the crucifixion? Mm. You know, we're all in God's classroom. And one thing God's been teaching me or trying to teach me because I'm a slow learner in this. But um, it, he means this not just for the really bad times of our lives. Mm -hmm. He means this for when things just don't go our way right. or when we're having a bad day. This is just as applicable. God wants us to know. He wants me to know, and this is what I've been trying to learn. When something doesn't go my way and I get frustrated, thank God it didn't go my way because that wasn't God's way. Right. If I'm praying for God's will to be done in my life, then he had a different plan. 
So right. that's something he's been trying to get me to understand. And uh, this applies just as much to those bad days that we have as to the really bad times. Very, very good, David. Any other thoughts? Okay. So we are going to switch gears. That is all that I had for Psalm 22. Um, so beginning next week, I want to I touch on something that um, I knew that we would only have a few minutes. How much time do we actually have left? About 10 or 15 minutes? Okay, that, that should work out really, really good. Um, so I want to go ahead and just introduce this. Well, hi, Caleb. How you doing, bud? Um, so I want to go ahead and introduce this. So next week, we're going to be starting a brand new series. Um, I had been praying and um, just debating back and forth on what we should get into. And um, after a lot of prayer and coming off the walk a couple of weeks ago, I really have a strong sense that we need to go through the book of Daniel. Um, so starting next week, we're going to start a new series called Decoding Daniel. And uh, remember in Matthew chapter 24, there's that little bitty verse where Jesus is, is talking to his disciples about the last things. And he quotes the book of Daniel. And he, in the, 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 there's a little parenthetical statement there that Matthew inserts. And he says, let the reader understand. And I love that. I always love that because sometimes prophecy is, can be very difficult to understand. Um, but the Bible tells us that the closer and the closer and the closer we get to the return of the king, the more these things are going to make sense. So we're going to do our very best to make sense of the book of Daniel starting next week. And listen, if you have somebody you want to invite, um, what a great opportunity right? To invite them to a Bible class. Um, it's a topic that interests a lot of folks. So it's a great door opener, if you will, to invite someone to church, invite someone to, to be a part of what we do here. So um, make that opportunity yours if, if you feel so led by the Lord. Okay, so a few weeks ago, you remember when we talked about the tabernacle? Okay, several weeks ago, we looked at um, the tabernacle, and we, we mentioned how every piece of the tabernacle, all the materials that were um, used to make the tabernacle, all the sections of the tabernacle, all of the seven pieces of furniture that you encounter as you go through the outer court, inner court, holy of holies, every single one of those things we said does what? Points to Jesus Christ. Well, it's been several weeks. So let's try that again. Points to, okay, coffee's out there if you need some. Um, just letting you know. There was something that was mentioned in there, and, and I thought, you know what, that would have been great to put in, but I forgot to do it. Um, so I went ahead and I made a little tiny slide presentation to present this to you, because if you have never seen this before, it'll blow you away. And by the way, I think we can do it in 10 minutes, and I needed something to fill up the time. So I thought I would do this for you this morning, okay? All right, the numbering of the children of Israel. Numbers chapter 1 um, in Numbers chapter 1, you have God instructing the children of Israel, Moses rather, to, um, to number the people of Israel, right? To number them by their tribes. So they're supposed to do a census and get a good accounting of how many people are there. Yes. Yes, they're numbering the men of war. Yes, ma'am. Not all of them, yes. Um, so just to kind of give you a chronology, these are the Jews who fled from the Egyptians. This is right after that time period. This is during the 40 years uh, wilderness wandering. And in Numbers chapter 1, they number the actual men of war, like you said, Sandy. And the actual population represented is bigger because of that fact. We know what the number of the men of war is 
but how many people total? Well, this is how you sometimes get estimations for different how many millions because you have to, you have to factor in, you know, uh, some people most assume a wife if they're of fighting age, right, because they would usually be married right around that time. Approximately how many kids, approximately how many elderly. Most scholars will do a factor of three, and there's anywhere between two million and three million people in total that were in this encampment, okay? Now, I think a lot of times when we read the Bible stories, we think, okay, great, there was a couple million people, and we move right on. Just stop right there for a moment. Think of the logistical nightmare it would be to organize that many people and to, to, to be able to move in stages, right? Because they had to move in stages wherever God had to tell them to go. Things had to be put away. Things had to be organized. And then when they had to pick it all back up again, they had to they organize it the right way, move in the right way. So it's, an, it's a logistical nightmare. And Moses was uniquely capable of being able to handle this. Why? Because he was raised in the court of the Egyptians, Right? He was raised with knowledge and wisdom that you would have given any kid that would be primed to maybe one day be a pharaoh, right? He received a royal education. He would have studied military science. He would have uh, known how to lead them out. In fact, the Bible says, the Bible says when he led them out, it says he led them out in military fashion. The Hebrew word says in military fashion. He led them out in companies, if you will. Yeah. Herded sheep for 40 years, which is wonderful prerequisite experience, right? To be able to do something like this. Okay, so when you go through the list here in chapter 1 and you get the totals and you see the total number of people that was camped on each side of the tabernacle, when you look at it, you see that it was divided up into four major camps, okay? So I have a graph up here behind me and uh, this will kind of give you a, a, a little bit of an idea. Let me get my notes straight here. Okay, so there's 12 tribes, and they're divided up into three tribes on each side of the tabernacle. So if you can imagine that tiny little yellow area, the, there's a little dot on the left. That's the Holy of Holies. The longer yellow one on the right is the holy place. The entire structure is in red. What you see in blue around there is the order in which the Levites were supposed to camp. The Levites were broken into four main groups, and they too were uh, appointed on the east, the north, west, and south side of the tabernacle. And then the tribes were put around them as well. So you've got four camps consisting of three tribes each. And when you follow the instructions that are given by God, you see that they were to encamp in one of the four cardinal directions, not northeast, not southwest or southwest or anything like that. They were to encamp directly north, directly east, directly south, directly west. Okay, everybody with me so far? Yes. Good, okay. So on the east side, you had the tribe of Judah and Issachar and Zebulun. And collectively, they were called the camp of Judah. They were called the camp of Judah. Um, and they had to encamp east of the Levites on the north side, you had the tribes of Naphtali, Dan, and Asher. On the west side, you had the tribes of Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh. And then on the south side, you had the tribes of Simeon, Reuben, and Gad. Okay, now here's something that's interesting. If you look up there on the screen, you'll notice the totals that was counted up for each of those 12 tribes, okay? If you go down the graph, you get an idea 
of what the encampment of Israel looked like if you were to chart this out in units. Does that make sense? Okay, so if I take a unit of a thousand people and I say it's about yay big, and then I multiply that out by actually how many people are on each side of this tabernacle, it's really interesting what you see. If you had been a bird flying in the wilderness above the children of Israel as they were going through uh, their wilderness wanderings, you would have seen something like this. What do you see? You see a cross. Now, I'm sure that's just a coincidence, right? Just a complete, total, absolute coincidence. Now, let me share a couple more things with you. Now, these are just interesting tidbits that a lot of people miss. But, um, but each side, again, was led by one tribe. Let me just give you one example. The, the tribe of uh, Judah was the eastern side, okay? And if you remember, the tribe of Judah was consist of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Each side had a tribal standard which all those three tribes would rally under, okay? Each standard had a picture on it. What's a standard? It's a flag, right? And a standard would be held up really high. If you were military, you would know where to go, right? That's my people. That's my group. That's where I go. We've heard of the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? What's the standard of the tribe of Judah? If you were to look at their flag, you would have had a picture of a lion. Okay, very, very good. Let me give you the other four or the other three. In the camp of Dan, you would have had a picture of an eagle, his standard was the eagle. If you were in the camp of Ephraim, um, you would have, let's see, you would have had uh, an ox, like an ox. What is an ox symbolized? Strength. You know that one, right, Sandy? The ox, the Aleph, the Aleph. If you were in the camp of Reuben, which consisted of Reuben, Simeon, and Gad, you would have been under the, um, the banner of a man. It would have had a picture of a man on it, a human. And then, you know where I'm going with this, right? Okay, and then if you keep going, okay, we did all of them, right? So you've got a lion, an eagle, an ox, and a man. Four banners, four standards upon which the, the nation of Israel was um, organized. Well, it's really interesting because in the book of Revelation, John sees this incredible vision of heaven, and he talks about these four living creatures. Remember that? This curious story about these four living creatures. And he says these four living creatures have four faces. Anybody remember what the four faces are? A lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Oh, well, I'm sure that's just coincidence, right? I, you know, and then I got to thinking, you take this a little bit further, and how many Gospels are there? There's four. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, Matthew is really interesting because uh, Matthew is trying to really convince the Jews that Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah, right? Right? And then Mark, he's trying to show you the servanthood of Jesus. And, and Luke, um, Luke is really kind of speaking to the, to the Gentiles, if you will, right? He's kind of the one. He's the doctor. He's talking to the Gentiles. John's different. John's showing a different perspective of Jesus. He's, he's showing the ascended Christ. He's showing the, the Jesus that's like an eagle who soars on eagle's wings, right? He's the divine nature. And if you look very carefully in the, the four Gospels, you see the lion, the ox, and the man, and the eagle represented there as well. Isn't that fascinating? So when the children of Israel went through the wilderness wanderings, that, look at there, the bell. I couldn't have timed that even better. Wasn't that good? That is what you would have seen. Guys, what is, 
What is our Father trying to convey to us? He's in charge. Nothing's an accident. What's that? Somebody said something else? Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. He has our backs no matter what. And, and your Savior, what was done for you on the cross was planned a long time ago, was it not? Amen. Okay. God bless you guys. Thank you. We'll start the book of Daniel. Yes, Sandy. Yes. Yeah. That's because Daniel is Daniel is written in Aramaic. So spelled differently. Yeah, spelled differently. Bless you guys. Thank you. What's that? <laughs>